Good morning, Big Woods. Thank you, band and Matt, for leading us in worship, for Sierra for the children's message, and for Aaron calling us to worship through scripture and prayer. We are continuing in Genesis 15 today. There are a few chapters, I would argue, in all of scripture that have as much reverberation, as much ongoing theological significance to the overall theology of the Bible as a whole than this chapter. It more concretely lays the foundation of salvation by faith. It demonstrates the sovereignty of God while also showing God's care and patience for sinful people. And it causes us to cast our minds forward to the work of Christ. On that note, let's dive in and read our passage for this morning before going before going before going before the Lord in prayer. Genesis 15, 7 to 21 in the English Standard Version. And he said to him, I am the Lord, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon them. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that we just have the privilege of coming here to worship you to worship the creator and the sustainer of the universe, a holy and just God who we do not deserve to even know the name of, much less worship and serve. And we praise you for that. And yet, God, we also confess that, that we don't recognize that honor as greatly as we should. That, God, we don't value your word, the Bible, as we should. We don't study it in the ways that would be pleasing to you but we also thank you and that you are merciful, that you are gracious, that you forgive us and love us even as we are a sinful group of people. So God, I pray that you would increase our love for you this morning, that you would increase our love for your word as we study it. Guard what I say, let it all be pleasing to you and help us to make understanding of it, that we would have greater appreciation for what you have done through all of history. 
and that these words would transform our lives through the work of your Holy Spirit. In your name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our study through the book of Genesis as a church. Even today, as we are immensely blessed to live after the life of Christ, and we have access to the entirety of God's revelation to humanity through the Old and the New Testament, we cannot forget the foundational truths and understandings revealed to us by God through the entirety of his word. There is great and incalculable value in knowing and studying the Old Testament well and thoroughly. So we will continue that today. Genesis opens by introducing us to God. God, the one and all-powerful creator of the universe. Even that short intro sets the God of Scripture as the sole and all-powerful creator, sets him apart from any other deity that ancient readers would have known. He creates humanity, have a special relationship with him. But humanity falls, it sins, it rebels against God by the actions of Adam and Eve. But even in the midst of this failure, even in the midst of this rebellion, God gives He promises that there will be another one, another Adam, another man who is to come, who will crush the serpent and set all things right. And humanity spends the next several generations looking for this next Adam. Every new man who comes along, they hope that this will be the one to set things right, but they quickly realize every new man is much like the oldest man who fails and falls to sin. Yet God does not abandon humanity, though we certainly deserved it. Rather, God promises to work in the life of Abram, to use him and his family to save others. As Pastor Aaron said last week, the rest of the Bible is God making good on his promise to Abram. Genesis fifteen six, and he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. That verse, Genesis 15, 6, that Aaron preached on last week, is going to reverberate. It's going to echo through the entirety of Scripture. How does that happen? How do the actions in the theology of Genesis 15 have an impact not just for hundreds of years, but thousands of years to come into eternity? We'll see as we dive on further. Point one, God is the initiator of the covenant. God is the initiator of the covenant. From 15, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Let's stop and reflect here for a moment. Abram is the one who has been brought out of Ur by God. Now, Ur was a city in Mesopotamia, ruled by the Chaldeans, an ethnic group that would make up much of the ruling class of the Babylonian Empire. And I don't think this additional information is accidental in any way. Babylon, along with Egypt, are the two ancient superpowers, which are nearly universally through Scripture, described and characterized as evil. It is the Babylonian Empire which would eventually attempt to conquer and defeat the kingdom of Judah. It's the Babylonian and Chaldean king Nebuchadnezzar who destroys Jerusalem and exiles the Judean kingdom. It is Babylon that is personified as an evil woman in Revelation 15 and 18. Revelation 15, or sorry, 17 and 18. Revelation 17, 5. 
Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Babylon does not have a good rap, nor do the Chaldeans in Scripture. Furthermore, the phrasing of verse 7 is nearly identical to that used in the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, verse 2. It says in Exodus, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In both cases, God says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur or Egypt. In both cases, God is acting sovereignly, delivering Abram from the darkness of Ur and Babylon, delivering Israel from the darkness of Egyptian slavery. In both cases, he saves them. He, God, has adopted them and his own. He is the initiator of these actions. Abram has no righteousness or value of his own to warrant this. It was a gift of grace by God. With this in mind, how can we not recognize the parallels with how God is not only the initiators of these covenants, but how Christ is the initiator of our salvation as well. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of my mankind. But now the greatest words in Scripture. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised up with him and seated us with him, and the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just as Abram, a man with no righteousness or value to earn this, was called by God out of the dark domain of Ur of the Chaldeans. Just as Israel, a nation of little significance and little worth, they were slaves, was called by God out of slavery of the darkness of Egypt. So are we, sinful people, sinful individuals, dead in our trespasses and sins. People have pursued the passions of the flesh and far more have been brought out from death to life. This is by God alone, who being rich in mercy, withholding what we deserve and giving us what we can never earn, called us and brought us to life in Christ because of the love with which he had. Just as Christ called Lazarus out of the tomb in 11. Just as God called Abram out of Ur, as he called Israel out of Egypt, we have been called out of our kingdom of spiritual darkness to life with Christ. God is the initiator of the covenants and our salvation. God is the initiator of the covenant and our salvation. We didn't start this. We, we didn't initiate it. 
There is no follower of Christ, no Christian who can say, well, I'm the one who started my salvation. I'm the one who put the wheels into motion. None of us are so righteous, so powerful, so awesome that God even had a reason for us to have on his team. The lack of his love for us as sinful people. We were pulled from death to life by God Almighty alone. Each of us, even if we don't want to hear it, we're sinful. We, we, we have failed, each of us deserving nothing more than death, as we're told in Romans 6.23. Yet God in his love for us calls us out of that darkness and death. He calls us from Israel to Egypt, calls us from Ur to life with him, just as he called Abram from the darkness of Ur to following him in obedience. How do we respond to this? What response can we possibly have outside of praise and worship to God? Praise God that he is the initiator of our salvation. Praise God that he cares and loves us enough to save us. King David marvels at this very thing in Psalm 8:4. What is man that you are mindful of him? We bring nothing of value. We bring nothing to the table to make us worthy of this action. Jonathan Edwards once said rightly, we contribute nothing to our own salvation except the sin which made it necessary. And yet, in spite of that, praise God. Praise God that he lets us into the king's home. Praise God that he lets us sit at the table welcomed as sons and daughters When we are sinful and wretched people, deserving nothing more than execution and damnation, we bring nothing more than our sin and the dirty rags that we consider our good works, yet we are instead clothed with the righteousness of Christ, not as servants, but as children of God. Our only response, our only possible response to this is to fall on our knees and worship that God, to worship the God that cared and loved the sinful people we have trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior. Continuing on, God is sovereign, just, and faithful. God is sovereign, just, and faithful. Genesis fifteen twelve to 16. And yes, I'm skipping a few verses. I'll circle back to them. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. From our Kent Hughes, God's promise is laid out in sequence. How, to whom, when, and why the land would be given. God lays out sovereignly what is going to happen over approximately the next 500 years of world history. Abram's descendants would come to a land that is not their own, Egypt, and become slaves for 400 years. After that period, God would bring judgment upon that nation, 
and Israel would be brought back out again. This time, vastly numerically increased, a great nation, and given many possessions as they leave Egypt. Just as described in the latter half of Genesis and the first half of Exodus. In verse 15, God does inform Abram that he will die in peace. This statement, challenging, I'm sure, for Abram to hear at that time, was one of a sovereign God who was revealing his plan for Abram's family in the world. But it would happen after his lifetime. Finally, when and why? God decrees that this will take place after 400 years because the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites, is not yet complete. God being patient with us and all of mankind is something we must recognize in Scripture. After all, if God would not be patient, if God was not long-suffering with mankind for even each of us, would anyone ever be saved? Romans 2.4 Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience, even with immensely sinful people, is a blessing because we are desperately in need of that patience. But the Amorites would push this to the point of no return. Uh, Leviticus 18.3 warns Israel to not follow their example. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. If you read through uh, Leviticus 18, the chapter continues on for, for quite a list of sins that were pervasive, heinous sins that were pervasive in the land, including sexual perversions and child sacrifice. In the words of David Kidner, Israel's eventual conquering of the promised land was an act of justice, not aggression. Sovereignly planned and ordered by a just God. But in the midst of all this, what, what can we take away from it? What can we learn for our lives today from this exchange between God and Abram and God's revealing of his plan? It is this, that God is sovereign, just, and faithful even when we don't see it yet. God is sovereign, just, and faithful, even when we don't see it yet. This is one of the few instances in Scripture that we have God laying out his plan and his reasons before us. We see God, patient and long-suffering for a nation, yet preparing another to be his people on a promised land. We get to see the big picture from God's perspective over hundreds of years. But I want us to ponder this. What would it be like to be an individual in the midst of this? Imagine being one of the individuals subjected to the evil of the Amorites, or being a slave in Egypt, or maybe for a more modern example, being someone who's had to suffer through the horrors of the Holocaust. God does not cause evil, and he never will. But God does use evil for his own purposes, to bring about good sovereignly in his will. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. I'm sure there are many individuals in this room who are having to face evil whether it's through trials, 
illnesses, struggles, and much more. And I'm not going to presume, I'm not going to argue that I can tell you what good will come out of that. I'm not God. We live in a fallen world. We live with fallen people who fail and even those who intentionally hurt those around them. We live in a fallen world with fallen bodies which get ill, which get sick, which can be in pain, and which die. We live in a world which is in defiance to God. So often bring pain and confusion to itself and its defiance and often to the youngest of those among us. Let's just be honest, life stinks at times. In a sinful world, life cannot be fun. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Life can be full of pain and heartache, trials and evil that make us want to do nothing but weep and scream and collapse and never get back up again. But even in the midst of all this, God is still sovereign. He still has a plan. He has a purpose yet it is so hard to see, especially in those moments. Sometimes we have to step back decades to see it. I have a short story for you about a guy named Rick. Rick was a high school football star, um, and he was a running back, if I remember correctly. And he was a very successful high school football star. Um, He was quickly noticed, and he had multiple major universities angling and pursuing him for athletic scholarships shortly after his sophomore year. In his senior year, things were going great. It was the top of the world. And during a typical Friday night football game, Rick would be tackled, which is pretty common in football. But something else would happen during this exchange. Rick's leg would break. And during the subsequent x-ray that night, doctors discovered that his leg was broken due to being weakened by bone cancer. And the decision had to be made quickly. Friday night, Rick was on the top of the world, a rising sports star in high school sports, looking forward and imagining greater stardom in college and maybe beyond. On Monday morning, he was on an operating table, having his right leg amputated above the knee, never to run or to play football ever again. We might look at this and say, how can God possibly use this? I met Rick and heard the story over two decades after these events. As he told me his story, he was in a dark place for a long period. Struggling to understand, okay, how could a good God allow something to happen? How can a good God make anything worthwhile come out of this? But even though those were his thoughts as an angry 18-year-old student who saw his life shattered, as Rick would come to understand, and as I already saw from my position, knowing him, God had used him for far greater impact. Rick would give up dreams of football and recommit his life to Christ. He would eventually go into ministry and service to God. He would become a pastor, seminary professor, and ministry leader in other ways. Because of his positions, he would influence thousands of future pastors, missionaries, and faithful church leaders. Outside the classroom, he would faithfully minister within his own local church. And even now today, leads individuals in sharing the gospel with untold thousands or tens of thousands 
around the world still. We have a sovereign God. A God who is not taken back or surprised. A God who is not befuddled by anything which which happens. A God who is not sleeping on the couch or away from his desk. We have a God who is absolutely in control. Who loves each individual far more than they love themselves. And is working out his plan for his glory and our eternal good. Even when, and maybe especially when, we can't see it. And I want to pause on this because I want to speak not just as someone preaching, but as a pastor. Even when we intellectually know that God can work things for his glory and for our good, even when we know that in our heads, it's still difficult to deal with. It's especially difficult to deal with in those moments, in those days, weeks, months, even years and decades, when we're going through something, when life is hard. As I said, a sinful world stinks. So I ask you this. If you're at a point in which life stinks, bring brothers and sisters in Christ alongside you. We're not meant to go through life alone. We go to Christ and God first, offer up the challenges, the pains, and more to come as children before our Father for comfort and directions. But we also bring ourselves to our family in Christ, alongside faithful brothers and sisters who can shoulder the burden with us. The phrase, I don't want to burden you, has no place in Christ's church. We are meant to bear one another's burdens. We are meant to come alongside one another in difficult times, to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We are not called to go through life alone. Finally, we're going to look at Genesis 15, 8 through 10, as well as verse 17. And I want to circle back a bit on this covenant ceremony. This large section of text involves a very unusual practice, which is foreign to us today, but made sense in Abram's culture. So let's read and examine it. Genesis 15, 8 through 10. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now verse 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. In summary, five animals are brought and killed. The larger of the three animals are cut in half and laid down so there's a path between the bloody animal carcasses. Through that path, a smoking pot and a flaming torch would pass. We look at all this and we're some degree of horrified, disgusted, wondering who forgot the grill. But I want to put our cultural preferences and what we're used to aside for the moment. Because God is communicating with Abram in a manner in which Abram would understand. He's not only communicating to Abram with a verbal language that Abram knows and can speak, but he's also using pictures. He's using ceremonies, using practices of Abram's culture 
to convey the significance of what God is about to do. Let's stop for a moment just recognize and praise God for this. Praise God that he's come to humanity in a way that we can understand. Praise God that he makes himself knowable, even when it's beyond our comprehension. What God is doing with Abram is he's cutting a covenant. The very word in Hebrew, berit, for covenant, is derived from the word to cut. In our days, we, we have contracts. So a contract becomes legally binding when both parties involved have finally signed on. So in athletics, it's all football today for some reason, especially in college football, signing day is a really big day for high school athletes and for universities. Um, National letters of intent are signed by individuals, locking them in and committing themselves to at least playing for one year at a school. It's a big deal. In the business world, Companies or individuals are not committed to the business deal or the company merger until everyone has signed on the dotted line. In Abram's day, they didn't do it that way. Rather, a a covenant was cut. It wasn't binding, it wasn't considered complete until it was cut. And a covenant was cut by means of animal sacrifice. That was the final agreement. In addition, those sacrificed animals gave a picture of what was to happen to the individual if they would go back on their word, if they would not hold up their end of the covenant. It was a common enough practice in ancient times that we have multiple letters. We have multiple ancient letters attesting to this. One says, I went to Salaka to kill a donkey between the Hanus and the Itamaris. I caused the donkey to be slaughtered and I established peace between these two peoples. In Assyrian literature, a lamb is recorded as being slaughtered to ratify a covenant between two kings. But it's also specifically listed out as the example of a curse which one of them would fall upon if they failed to uphold their end. Jeremiah 34, 18 references the same idea of cutting a covenant and the penalties of breaking said covenant. The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant they made before me I will make them like the calf they have cut in two and pass between its parts. This was common enough in Abram's day that he recognized exactly what was happening. It would seem an animal was killed and its body parts often divided. And participants would walk through the path between these slaughtered animals as a way of signing or a formal binding to the covenant. Arcan Hughes The ceremony dramatized a self-imposed curse should either of the covenanting parties (coughs) break the curse. The sense was, if I break my word, may I become like this severed animal. Now, you might be thinking, okay, wait a second. Who passes through these animals again? Because it's not Abram. It's a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. It's not a man. Again, in Abram's day, these objects were used to to represent deities in Mesopotamia. God is again using objects familiar with Abram to communicate to Abram. He's trying to convey something here. So what's the point of this elaborate and bloody ceremony? The covenant is both making Abram into a great nation and giving him this land possessed. But there's one problem. Abram can't do either of those things. We would think a a covenant between Abram and God would require both to walk through the path of blood between the slaughtered animals. 
a normal cutting of the covenant ceremony would require that. Imagine this task being put before an 80 or 90-year-old something man of, you must make yourself into a great nation, then God will hold up your end of the covenant. But we know Abram can't do it. His wife is barren. They don't have any children. Thank God that is not what he does. It's not what we see. Rather, it is God alone, not only represented by the smoking fire pot passing through the animals, but yet again, the flaming torch. It is God who promises to not only give Abram's family the land, but also promises to make Abram into a great nation. It was God alone. From Hughes, it was an unconditional, unilateral covenant. God was the guarantor of this covenant. God is the guarantor of the covenant. God came down before a man in a way that is unfathomable. He came down to make a covenant to show his plan and promise to a man using a bloody and man-made promise ritual. Imagine if we didn't believe God unless he came down and pinky swore before us or wrote his name on a dotted line. How arrogant would we have to be? Yet God humbles himself, bringing himself down to our level so that an imperfect, sinful man like Abram could understand that God is going to be the guarantor of the covenant. And let me tell you, God being the guarantor is desperately needed. Just as Abram could not hold up his end of the bargain, neither can the rest of humanity after him. Following the exodus from Egypt, Israel at Mount Sinai, God made a covenant with the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 30, 15 to 19. See, I have set before you life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I have commanded you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. In Deuteronomy 30, correction, God is making a covenant with Israel. If you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, it will not go well for you. If you have read any bit of the Old Testament after Deuteronomy 30, you realize really quickly which direction this goes. It does not go well. Israel fails again and again to follow and obey God. They commit sin, grievous, massive sin, again and again. And yet God forgives them again and again. We are called by humanity, or called by God as humanity from the very beginning to live holy and sinless lives. And in exchange, we would have had an eternal relationship and eternal life with God. Well, guess what? The very first man, Adam, couldn't hold up his end of the bargain. That check bounced. And we are no different. We cannot live holy and sinless lives on our own by God. Our account of righteousness has a big fat zero in it. 
We cannot do it. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We cannot hold up our end of the covenant. So praise God that he knew, as sovereign Lord, that he had and had made a plan for us from before the foundations of the earth. God knew he would need to send his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. God is the guarantor not only of the covenant with Abraham but he's also the guarantor of our salvation. God is the guarantor of the covenant and our salvation. God knew that Abram, he couldn't fulfill what was needed. He couldn't do it. Therefore, God stepped in to be the guarantor, making the unconditional, unilateral covenant with himself. Not only promising Abram a future heir, but promising a nation and a land to possess. In the same way, God knows we can't fulfill what we need to have eternal life with him. We don't have a chance of it. We were given a chance as humanity. Adam was given a chance to be faithful in the garden. Israel was given a chance to be obedient in Mount Sinai. And every other person since then has tried and has all utterly failed. We have blown it. We as humanity cannot keep up our end of the deal. We have dropped the ball again and again. God must step in. He is the guarantor. He is the one through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, causing Christ to be cursed, to take our just punishment for sin so that we could have righteousness through him. Something we can never obtain ourselves, just as Abram could never become a great nation by himself. We have failed to uphold the covenant, but Christ has guaranteed its fulfillment. We have defaulted on our loan, but Christ has paid it in full. We have rebelled against a just and a holy God. But Christ has fulfilled that wrath so that we can have eternal peace and relationship with our Lord. God is the guarantor of the covenant and our salvation. And what can we do in response? We can rest in Christ and his work. We can rest in Christ and his work. If we have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, there's nothing more we must give. We have nothing else to contribute. Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't try and wear yourself down attempting to make up for past sin to God. Christ has already paid it. We should never attempt to take up the burden of redeeming ourselves because we can't do it. We can't earn our salvation and we can't pay it back. Even in the moments when we have miserably failed, Christ has already paid it all. There is mercy and forgiveness and hope. 
Because guess what? Your salvation isn't dependent upon what you have done, what you do, or what you will do. Your salvation is dependent upon what Christ has already done and already completed. You can't make God love you more or love you less. You can't become more or less of a son or daughter of God no matter what you do. I have two sons, two boys who I love more than I ever possibly imagined I would. If one of my sons came to me, now they're young, they can't talk like this, but what must I do to be your son? Be kind of an odd question coming from a three-year-old. But I would be heartbroken. I, I would be crushed if they would ask that question. He's my son. Even as the sinful and perfect father that I am, there is nothing he needs to do to be my son. He simply is. There's nothing he can possibly do to not be my son. He can rest. He can find peace in that, that he is my son, and he will be my son no matter what. We, if we have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, don't need to wonder, don't need to ask, what do I need to do to be a child of God? Or, you know, when I messed up last night, am I still a child of God? We don't need to worry about those questions if we've been forgiven, because we are forgiven. We are forgiven in our moments of failure. We are forgiven even when we continually and repetitively battle against the same sin and struggle against the same sin in our lives. If you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can have peace in Christ's finished work. Come to Christ. Lay your burdens at his feet. Recognize that he has paid the price. He is the guarantor of our salvation and not us. We can breathe, we can rest, we can have peace. It's upon Christ and not ourselves. The gospel, the good news of what Christ has done for you is not only for unbelievers, but for believers as well. Because we never graduate from the gospel. You never move on from the gospel. There's this mistaken thought that think the gospel is for those who need Christ. They come, they hear about the gospel. Okay, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus now as my Lord and Savior. Okay, we need to move on to something else. Not at all. We need to come back to, to grow in, to meditate on, and worship God because of the good news, because of the gospel. The fact that God made humanity to have a special relationship with him yet we blew it. We sinned and rebelled, breaking that relationship with our Heavenly Father. So God, knowing we could never pay ourselves, we could never be the guarantor of our salvation, sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life. Die a death he never deserved upon the cross, paying our debt before resurrecting, defeating death and sin. And we can have that renewed relationship with God if we trust in his son as Lord and Savior. Saved not by what we do, not by what we've done, but what by Christ has done and completed. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Just as God stooped to the level which Abram couldn't understand, by passing through the slaughtered animals, putting himself being the guarantor of the covenant. So has Christ, 
the founder and perfecter of our faith. He not only fulfilled the law, but also paid the cost of the law. He not only fulfilled his end of the bargain, but fulfilled ours as well by being slaughtered, by being killed and ripped apart upon the cross. He became the initiator and the guarantor of our faith and salvation. That act, that, that, that sacrifice, that payment, is what we remember when we celebrate communion. That Christ paid the cost and we didn't have to. That Christ upheld the covenant. That he was the guarantor because we couldn't do it. When Christ first taught his disciples this, he did it so that they would remember. We are sinful, forgetful people. So he gave this as a reminder. What he did is he took his disciples, and the night before his execution, he took them to an upper room. And as they're eating, and and I'm sure talking, he quieted things down, and he called them together. What he would do, he would take bread, brought it out before him and said, this is my body. It's going to be given to you. And he, he tore it apart in front of them, showing how it would be broken. And, and he took the fruit of the vine, and, and he poured it out before the, his own disciples and said, this is my blood, which will be poured out for you. If you're visiting with us today as a brother and sister in Christ, you're welcome to join us in remembering what Christ has done. I do ask, though, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted him as your Lord and Savior, I would politely ask you to refrain. It would be meaningless. But you can, where you are, put your trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior today. And if you have questions, or you're uncertain or anything, just take a moment. Grab me afterwards. Grab one of our other elders. Ask the person beside you, hey, are you a member of Big Woods? And grab them and ask them questions. Ask us questions more about our Savior. I would love to talk to you about that. If the elders at this time would come forward, um, they'll be at stations around the sanctuary to serve you. Um, If everyone would come on up, grab the bread and the juice, and return to your seats. Uh, We're going to take a moment to pray together to remember Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, and then we'll take them together as a family. To the glory and honor of the initiator and the guarantor of our faith and salvation.
Thank you, brothers, for serving us. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you are the initiator of our salvation. Thank you that you reached down to save a sinful people, to save sinful individuals like myself, who have no worth or value of our own outside of the love which you bestow upon us. Is it something we can never earn ourselves? Thank you that you are the guarantor of our salvation. That God, it is upon your son and his work that we can have peace and rest in it and not our own. And we thank you for your son, for his sacrifice upon the cross that we may not forget, but that we would remember and praise you for it. In your name we pray, amen. That night, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was to be betrayed, took the bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, the cup this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread, or drink the cup, eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It says afterwards they came together and sang a song. So as the worship band comes up, let us remember. Christ is the guarantor of our salvation. Christ is the one who holds us fast and not ourselves. Let us praise God for that.